When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about some new cool and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 328. We're recording on Thursday, August 29th, 2019. I'm Jeff. This is Rebecca. I'm pointing to this sort of astral <laughs> figure to my left here. And uh, we're coming to you from the very good <laughs> book-related website, bookriot.com. You know, someday we'll have holograms or like no, operating or something. I don't want that. We no. don't like video. We don't even like video calling. Do you think we'd be down with holograms? It seems unlike us. I yeah, I don't know. But when we're actually in the same room, it's fun. Like the Da Vinci Code yeah. one is fun. There's something about video calling that's like almost the uncanny valley of human communication. That is. That, that's yeah, fun. I guess so. I'm not. I think I'm out on holograms. Just in You're general. I'm, yeah, I don't okay. think I don't like it. I'm not into it. I mean, as long as my hologram can be like wearing grown-up clothes while the actual me is in pajamas all the time. Oh, so you're, you're talking about like a, a hologram avatar. So not actually what you're doing right now, but like a deep fake hologram that's performing what you're saying in any given. So I'm like yeah, wearing a tuxedo sure. and holding a martini, talking about yeah, podcast I mean, if, stuff. If you want to go Gatsby, sure. I mean, that's what I do every week for the show. So I guess it should be, a, that's what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> So it should be what my uh, astral projection looks like. As Obviously, well, I, think. I mean, if we're going to the land of astral projections, then I should get to astrally project like the ideal version of myself, and mm. not the you know work from home pajama reality. The filters for holograms are going to be. I'm not sure. I'm mm. ready for this. <laughs> Even thinking about it, I'm breaking out in emotional I was hives. Just thinking the other day about how glad I am that Google Glass never caught on. <laughs> Just wait. It's coming. Not ready yet. It's going to come at some point. Um, Well, this has already been a whole journey, and we've been here for two minutes. Welcome. It's the middle of the summer. Speaking of whole journeys, let's give you a heads up about the the bonus episodes that are coming up. So you can look for it Wednesday night, Thursday morning. The first of our bonus episodes we recorded yesterday. We're all out of time here. Um, But that's our fall book preview in which... Rebecca mostly put together a list of the 14 buzziest, most interesting books, also books we just sort of want to talk about, books of the fall, and we're doing, we kind of went round and round with buy, sell, and hold, what we think of them relative to their expectations, their pre-publication buzz. Um, we had a really good time doing it, so I hope you'll check that out on Wednesday night. Then also, the, the week after, so I guess this will be the, releasing on September 11th or so, 12th, depending on what time zone you're in, so on and so forth. We're going to take a look back um, at The Interpretive, Interpretive Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri, which is the 20-year anniversary of its publication. It came out in 1999 and was a big success. Um, Lahiri's had an interesting career since then. That book won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's become a mainstay of sort of the modern literary fiction canon. Um, both of us read it around the time it came out. Haven't read it since, and we thought it would be interesting to do a retrospective. Take, we're going to read it again. We're going to look at it holds up. Maybe do a little bit of like what it meant at the time, where it fit into the time. Look at Lahiri's corpus to date, um, and see if if it lived up to our memory of it. And 
I think one question would be interesting in this situation, this is a debut book that made a big splash. Has her career since then sort of lived up to or exceeded or I guess lived under what you would have get? Would you, if you would buy and sell or hold Lahiri then, would you have made money? Kind of use the same conceit. I think it's an interesting thing, interesting way of thinking about it. Um, you've started reading it already. I have it on mm-hmm. my nightstand for when I'm done moving. So that's coming up. So if you want to check that out and be ready and have it uh, in mind for that discussion, great. Or if you want to listen to it cold, also fine. It's also not very long, um, so you can get it through is- it. Under 200 pages. Yeah. So first, and you want to give a, a preview of your take? What, what's your initial reaction so far? You know, I told you, and I'll, I'm sure I'll say it again on that show, but this book contains what I remember as one of my favorite short stories, mm-hmm. like in all of life. And one of the reasons that I haven't gone back to it in almost 20 years is like fear of what re-encountering it would be like and would the experience hold up. Um, mostly, I am overwhelmed by what the like 21 year old version of myself took away from this book, how I remember it and the vast ocean between (laughs) that person and who I am now at, at 36 and the things that I think I missed Mm. as a, as a younger reader. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm doing like one story every morning, um, over these couple of weeks before we do the show so that I can just really linger with it, but I'm really glad we've gone back. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that's, that's good enough. Um, for show business right now. Okay, well, let's get on to the, our regular format show here uh, after we do a quick sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santángel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at 
LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. Um, okay, let's do let's do newsy kinds of things. I want to talk about this Emily Dickinson trailer oh maybe towards the end, but um, <laughs> we haven't covered, to my knowledge, did you and Sharifa talk about this Audible text-to-speech thing? Because I don't think you and I have talked about it. I can't remember if you guys I did I can't remember if I said words about it on the show or yeah. if it was just something that was on a possible agenda we didn't actually get to it. So either way, let's go there. Yeah, so we're now um, a couple of chess moves into the story. Um, had we talked about it initially, we I think we could have easily talked about it. It maybe just got bumped or didn't get it. It, it kind of hit uh, a seam of scheduling. Um, but Audible has a new captions feature. Um, the feature uses machine learning. This is from an article in the Virgil link to in the show notes uh, to describe spoken words into written run, written ones. So users can <laughs> read along while listening to an audiobook. And they're doing that based on the audiobook recordings, which if you have a license, audiobook, print, ebook, all have different licenses, even though they're for the same words, the medium matters here, right? So, you know, if you have the right to sell, um, a particular format doesn't mean you have the right to sell, replicate all of them. Uh, and when this came out, it was, we were hearing a lot of, squ- maybe louder than squawking from publishers about, wait a minute, aren't you just then sort of bundling without us saying it's okay to have an ebook of this? B- basically a live streamed ebook while you're listening to the audiobook. And now the publishers are suing saying this is an abuse of the license. Um, I'm not surprised. It seems to me, I'm not a lawyer, as you know, um, I don't have the exact words of the contracts in front of us because I don't think these are things in the public realm. But on a first pass, common sense reading, I don't feel like you can do this. I, I mean, just the, the spirit of the idea of selling an audiobook, I feel like this broaches that, but I'm not sure how you come down on it. I think I agree. I think that in terms of like the spirit of the way these things seem to be written and how the licenses are separate for physical books, ebooks, and audiobooks, the publishers have are are well within their rights to contest this. The more that I think about it though, the more I think that the this kind of approach is outdated. Like that these licenses and the way of mm. separating formats comes from things that have been tacked on like after audiobooks came to exist and then after ebooks came to exist and without anticipation of the ways that those technologies would overlap that having an audiobook and the ability to functionally have like captions on the screen as you're going through the audiobook is like that's a great move for accessibility it's a great reader service i think figuring out how to allow this to happen would behoove the folks who make all of these apps and would also behoove publishers in the long run. Like you haven't necessarily lost money if you're random house, because like I sincerely doubt that most people are going to buy the audiobook and then be willing to shell out separately for the ebook so they can sit there and do mm-hmm. the thing of listening and reading along. But if you built it in as a feature that publishers supported so that also audible could have the actual text and not be generating it from AI, <laughs> Like, how good is the AI also um, that's interpreting these things? Then 
you could serve your readers well and you could maybe increase the cost of your service to incorporate some of those things. So that's the direction I think it should go. For the place that we are now, I think the publishers are well within their rights to say, hey, this violates copyright. It violates the licenses that we have. But I would like to see the industry go in a direction of these licenses that we have don't actually serve us or the reading public in the ideal fashion. So what can we do to come into the future? Yeah, weirdly... It looks like the legal defense of the practice hinges on that very thing you mentioned, which is that the AI is generating it on the fly. Um, And so there are errors and weird stuff that's going to happen because AI is AI, and it's not actually a transcript provided by the publisher or the author or whatever other source that is canonical. They're saying it's actually not a transcript of the book because they're just interpreting it um, into text that appears which I think is a weird argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also think there's there is a there is a case you know we talk about this sometimes where sometimes you have to protect copyright not because you care about that particular instance but so that you can say you're protecting your copyright. Mm-hmm. You can imagine if Penguin Random House or the other publishers didn't protect their copyright here that some other third party might say I'm gen- AI generated maybe they have an audible subscription they generate Mm-hmm. AI transcripts and then sell those as ebooks. Well, why why couldn't you do that? How is that not the same basic argument here? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there's multiple vectors uh, of challenge and clarity that are going to transpire here. Um, it seems to me. I think you're right. I think if you want a sort of streaming transcript as you go, maybe it's an upcharge per title. Pay a buck and you can get the caption. You know, you can get the. Um, the text-to-speech feature or something else like that, and the publishers get a cut out of us. Or, Lord forbid, we get true bundling, so it's all <laughs> garbage. Like, you know, maybe you just get an ebook copy for two, three, two or three bucks in addition to it, which includes the ability to live stream it. I'm all right with adding a yeah. cost here because you're getting a new feature. Yes. Um, I don't think in the current mind space of most people who buy audiobooks that you're like, you have a right to this necessarily um but i could be wrong about that so interesting feature one of those edge cases that you know existing law and contract doesn't really have a case for um weird that audible as big as a company it was just do this like is it worth it this is the thing i can't figure out this is gonna be an expensive lawsuit for audible i don't care if they win or not is this feature interesting enough that it moves the needle for them that part i don't get exactly like what what's in it for audible to bother with this this could put that's a really good question um that i hadn't considered but i think maybe a one thing that's in it for audible is publishers don't want to spend the money to go all the way through with this lawsuit like you're right this will be very Mm. expensive it will be very expensive for audible like everyone involved so perhaps there's a settlement compromise option that includes um, some sort of compromise about these licenses and about Audible getting access to the actual text of these books and being able to display it. Like You can easily imagine a sort of tack on to your Audible subscription of like, and for an extra $3.99 per month, you get the captions as well. Having the actual text from the books would be better for everybody. Like, I don't know anything about Audible's AI, but the voicemail transcripts on my iPhone are routinely bananas. Mm -hmm. And so I would hope that Audible can do better than that if that's 
where they're going here, but having the actual text would be great. And this has also made me wonder where the text from closed captions on like Netflix come from. Um, a friend was over here last night watching Netflix and she had closed captions on and I was noticing that the words in the closed captions weren't exact matches for the things coming out of the characters' mouths. And it's like, where, but Netflix made this show and presumably has the script to it. So why is that happening? There's so many interesting things about the tech, like where we are in technology here. But I wonder if this is Audible's move, like presumably Audible knew that this was copyright risky and they have this AI thing like lined up as an argument Mm -hmm. about it. But maybe this is a move toward trying to force some kind of, you know, greater agreement about how licensing works and what kind of text you're actually getting the access to. Yeah. It feels to me like it's actually not about the thing itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a lot of people out there that would like to watch, to read along um, with the book they're listening to. I am not one of them, so it, it doesn't appeal to me. But it, it seems to me it's it's kind of like sometimes like you see disagreements between giant companies over licensing or something else, and it's actually about some underlying patent dispute yeah. or something else. And it can be hard um, as a person on the sidelines really to understand um, what's happening here because even though Audible is a big company and it's a subsidiary of Amazon, it seems to me at this point it'd be more trouble than it's worth now. If they're, if they're thinking about some other play that if this is kosher, then they're going to press their luck on the next thing after this, which mm-hmm. is an AI, uh, basically a static transcript, which is effectively an ebook, right? Is that good enough that you get basically a, a bundled vision? Like why is the streaming part necessary here? So if the AI is allowed, it's like, okay, this is includes your copyright because you're just providing a transcript of the thing you bought. Well, why isn't it static that's included in your Audible app and you can click on the transcript button when I'm listening to, uh, what am I listening to? Uh, uh, I like to watch by Emily Nussbaum and I could switch back and forth without having to buy the Kindle ebook. But on the other hand, you can buy the Kindle ebook. A lot of times if you've bought the Audible book, you can get that there's a special deal. Like, I don't know if people know about this. We can often go pick up the Kindle book for like three bucks. They have some deal with publishers where if someone has bought the Audible version of a book, you can go get the, you know, pick up the Kindle version for $3 more. So it seems like that's already there. So I'll be curious to see, I guess if this is just about this particular feature and that's the end of this story, I'll be really surprised. Um, That's kind of where I'm coming. The next thing is more interesting to me than this thing, but I don't even know what that next thing is. Yeah, I, I think so too, that what's coming after this and the full context of this is much more interesting than this actual thing itself. Um, while we're talking about listening to stuff, um, it's been a while since we've had one of these. We don't really get these dust-ups on the internet anymore about listening to audiobooks versus reading print books versus e-books. I think we're all, even the people that wanted to, to quetch about, you know, audiobooks aren't real books, either have come around or learned to shut up, and either of those <laughs> is fine with me at this point. What we haven't talked about so far is move you know move the you know, move the goalposts a little bit. Okay, well, audiobooks are good. Audiobooks are like reading, but what about podcasts like this one, which is you know words coming into your ears? Um, does it matter that it's a chat show? Does it matter that it's a scripted podcast? How, if at all, it's different than reading? And a new study in the Journal of Neuroscience suggests that basically brain maps look alike for podcasts and reading. So what your brain is doing while you're listening to a podcast is a lot like what your brain is doing while you're reading. Stimulates the same cognitive and emotional parts of the brain as reading. This to me um, 
you know, what, yeah, it passes the smell test. And I guess that does it mm-hmm. line up with your own anecdote. I guess is that that phrase means passes the smell test. That's what we mean. Sure. When we use that, it feels like to me this makes sense. Um, yeah, this makes sense to me too. Yeah. And this, I think I pulled this link from our Book Riot contributor Slack, where they share news about things, and several people there also chimed in with like this. It just feels true. Um, it's interesting that in the study, people listened to stories from the Moth Radio yeah. Hour, and then they read those same stories, and they were put into a functional MRI machine. Um, so their brain activity, while consuming the exact same words, but via text and audio, were virtually identical. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love that the context of this study is not like, let's validate that audiobooks are a valid form of reading, because I think we all have accepted that or everyone is far enough onto the train for the train to have left the station, like audiobooks are reading get over it. Um, but they're looking at how can we like, use this understanding of language processing mm. with the different ways that we have to deliver language and stories now to understand like how to help people who have experienced strokes or seizures or traumatic brain injuries that impair their speech or even for things like dyslexia. Um, so that's, I think, really promising and validating that, like using science to validate that consuming information via audio is not just like a legit use but a like scientifically and neurologically identical process um will really lend to moving forward like this is a valid way of consuming things it's also not you know less useful in some fashion text is not better than audio Mm -hmm. Um, and we can learn a lot about how to help folks who for whatever reason um cannot read or process written information as as easily or some who can't process audio auditory information there's some people that have auditory processing disorders that they cannot interestingly distinguish between phonemes Mm -hmm. that make up words it's i guess the way the, the shorthand would be it's sort of a um you know auditory dyslexia though that doesn't quite map up but for you know uh getting an emotional understanding similar kinds of difficulty. Um, so seeing how I don't know enough, I should say that if brain maps line up, is that enough to say that they're doing the same thing? I I guess we don't have any, that's as good as we can do at this point, right? Um, we don't have, or haven't done to this point, the kinds of things about audiobooks we've heard where, you know, you listen to an audiobook versus you read the book and then you take a test and the comprehension results are about the same. I guess that's right. Some of this gets back to this question and at the back half of this episode, I didn't tease it at the top, I'm going to have an interview with Lee Price, whose new book is out called What We Talk About When We Talk About Books. And so much of what's involved here is a sort of a conservative romantic notion is a phrase that's going to come up in that interview about reading in books. That it's, we romanticize books and that romanticism inherently is conservative. And so challenges or disruptions or progress or just change in the way we understand what reading looks like, we're kind of talking about text processing in a variety of formats. Um, it comes back to what do, we, what do we mean when we talk about reading? What, what are we trying to protect if we say it's not as good as reading? And this really puts, gets us closer to the metal of, well, if it's not something that's going on in your brain that's different, then it's just sort of elliptical clouds of 
unobjectively correlated feelings about things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, that's can be hard to hear and maybe hard to hear for people who are listening to a podcast about books and reading. Um, <laughs> but an expansive view of books and reading, I think, is good on the whole for yeah, everyone in aggregate. That's largely the conclusion that we reached on the annotated episode right. I produced about is reading endangered or books endangered and folks sort of all around it were like, well, according to science, no, according to history, we resist every evolution of the way that we share stories and consume stories and process mm-hmm. information. Um, but that we're actually all fine. Uh, so it's mostly feelings. It's mostly TLDR. Feelings. It's mostly feelings. <laughs> okay. So we're going to do a little shorter version of our normal show today. Let's do another sponsor. We got a few more, uh, stories to talk about. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, The Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Um, that w- that's a, the, you know, the, the audible stuff is interesting. The text is, you know, a podcast is reading and doing the same thing. A brain map is interesting. Uh, brain map is interesting. This next story is also interesting, but maybe a bit more confusing and um, thinky face emoji. (laughs) Apple this week released its trailer for its Emily Dickinson-based TV show that's coming out in the fall as part of Apple TV's Plus premium video content service. Um, Boy, the, the fall is really hitting the fan with streaming content services, which we've talked about in the past, and maybe once they're all out and available, we can revisit them in a, in a non-book-related sort of way as one of these stories. 
boy. Um, <laughs> Haley Stanfield, Steinfield plays Emily Dickinson in a, I don't even know how to describe it, a, an antic, an antic Emily um, running it around, feels, things are on fire, sort of rebel teenage. It feels uh, like a Emily dream acid trip situation. Yeah. Uh, a really wild interpretation of Emily Dickinson's life. I don't know. It's been a while since I've done Emily in Emily Dickinson biography. We don't know much yet about the um, showrunner's vision for what it's trying to do here. It's written, created, and produced by Elena Smith, um, an executive produced by Stein, by Steinfeld herself. I have to say, I really like Haley Stanfield. I liked everything I've ever seen her in. So... I'm inclined to give this a benefit of the doubt. If there's some, if it's some actress that I'd never heard of in this, I'd be like, this is a mess. Um, but maybe I'm giving it too much credit. Maybe I wouldn't be giving enough credit in that situation. <laughs> My question to you is, who is this for? Um, Rincey said that it looked like a CW <laughs> version of Emily Dickinson's life, which I think is a tough beat, but maybe not wrong. <laughs> I don't, is it for English made people in college? Like, it seems to me the people interested in Emily Dickinson's show may not be as interested in this kind of fevered version of it. I'm just not sure what to make of this. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about that, too. I think it's broadly for the millennials, like yeah. to make Emily Dickinson interesting and relevant to young people. Um, it One thing that I am pro about this approach is that it brings her queerness to the forefront yeah. and her queerness and her relationships with women have largely been buried in historical accounts of her. So bringing that forward is great. That's also very of the moment. Um, and the younger audiences want to see queer stories and see that kind of representation. I've been, I've been noodling on this a lot. And I think that maybe a different approach where it's a story that's inspired by Emily Dickinson's life, or they like very clearly pick a time frame that matches um, sort of the artistic style. Like why is this not, it, it feels very just off. Like it's a very 2019 aesthetic with a story that's set in the 19th century. And why couldn't Emily Dickinson be like a 2019 character here? Like a modern version of Emily Dickinson that's mm -hmm. really modern, I think would be interesting in the way of like, you know, that Clueless is an adaptation of Pride, not Pride and Prejudice, um, of a Jane Austen novel. I think that's Emma. Emma, yes. Yeah. And you don't have to know the source material at mm. all to get on board with that story. I think there might be a way to weave Emily Dickinson into modern entertainment in a way that feels less confusing. Um, this trailer is a mess in a way that you and I both like interesting messes. Yes. And I think this is in that category. Um, the, the rest of the cast is interesting too. Jane Krakowski is in it, which um, somebody, it was either Rincey or um, Annika Klein wrote a piece about this for Book Riot said, just the presence of Jane Krakowski makes it feel like you're watching a spoof. Like this looks mm. like something that would show up as a spoof on a 30 rock bit. Um, Toby Huss is in it. I love him. Like I want to see these people perform these characters i think i'm going to give it a shot also because of the casting i'm really curious which means we have to sign up for apple tv plus though just uh, to put that out there well maybe not then um did I'm you see very... the trailer for morning show by the way it's not an adaptation the the witherspoon aniston vehicle no you... but that's appealing watch that because that's interesting 
I, I'm definitely going to be doing the Disney thing, the Disney mm-hmm. Plus thing. Mm-hmm. They have the Marvel and the kids and Pixar. Um, it does it just so happens that there's a Star Wars series that, that's maybe the most anticipated thing in my life right now. So um, I'll definitely be doing that. I was on the fence about Apple TV Plus. I think I remain on it. This looks like an interesting enough mess that I, I might, you know, if there's a free trial and I can, yeah. you know, do it all, check it out at least, it might be worth doing. But check out that trailer. I think I think it looks pretty interesting. I'm not sure if it's going to be great because trailers often, you know, trailers, it's easier to make a good trailer than a good TV show. I don't know what Apple TV is doing with this thing. I don't know why this, why of, of all the things to pick for Apple TV Plus, why this it seems very strange to me. Is, is anyone signing up to watch this? Like maybe you'll watch it if you're getting the series anyway, but boy, it seems like yeah, a, it's, it's a very difficult sell to the kind of people who are probably already have Netflix, probably already going to have the Disney Plus service, and then maybe you can get Hulu for, and then HBO. Like Apple's fourth or fifth down the pecking order, and if your pitch is The Morning Show and Dickinson, that is rough uh, as a as a business proposition. I hope we see more. But I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. I think it's a very interesting choice. My spidey sense is that Steinfeld wanted to do this, mm-hmm. and Apple TV wanted to be in the Haley Steinfeld business, and this is what this was the cost. This was the table stakes <laughs> to get her into a show. Like uh, do whatever you want, and it looks very particular to someone's vision, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't know if that vision has any other eyeballs out there interested in it, um, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm really interested in how like the first week reviews of this go. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where do you want to go? You know, I want to talk about this weird copyright yes. situation since we've been talking about things coming into public domain. I, there's a story this week. You can read all the details in The Guardian, but basically... Uh, T.S. Eliot, when he was a director of Faber and Faber back in 1944, rejected George Orwell's Animal Farm, refused Mm -hmm. to publish it in his capacity there at at Faber and Faber. And over time, that meant that um, since they passed on it, Orwell wouldn't send them his next book, which ended up being 1984. Mm -hmm. So Faber and Faber missed out on, you know, the George Orwell phenomenon. And that decision apparently has been haunting the publisher ever since. Now, Toby Faber, who is the former managing director and the grandson of the publisher's founder, he's urging the publisher to rectify T.S. Eliot's bad call because in 2020, um, Animal Farm will come out of copyright and into public domain. Mm. And he wants Faber then to print their own edition of it alongside Elliot's rejection. (laughs) (laughs) And this just got me thinking, there are a lot of pretty famous stories about like huge novels that got rejected a lot of times. The Help, uh, like this piece lists like The Help, The Time Traveler's Wife, Harry Potter was famously rejected many, many times. I think probably most publishers and most editors have some closely held regret of a thing they turned down that became huge. And when you're talking about a thing you turned down that became as huge and as culturally important, not just critically and and not just commercially successful as uh, George Orwell that regret, I totally understand like the desire to do something about it and having the book come out of copyright and into public domain presents an interesting opportunity to be like, man, we, we got this one wrong and we should have published this book in the first place. And so now we're going to publish it and 
I think that could also just look like a money grab of like 1984 and animal farmer, great books that they get assigned in classrooms and they're part of the canon. And we're also sorry that we didn't get all those dollars from publishing them, but putting it alongside Elliot's rejection makes that interesting to me in a way that just we're printing this because it's in public domain wouldn't be so that I just thought this was fascinating. That larger framing of a book coming out of copyright as a chance for a publisher to rectify turning down something that became really significant. Uh, yeah, I guess it's interesting. My, my take is this is this is the, this is a dog bites man story. All almost <laughs> all all books get rejected initially. So That's I true. I'm not sure what's especially interesting about Orwell. I'm sure we could go back. Like I mean, the list here is good enough to tell you that this is more common than not. I mean, what'd be fascinating to me is a list of immortal classics that weren't turned down initially because they tend immortal classics tend to be innovative mm-hmm. and edgy and you know, outside of the mainstream of what a particular taste is at the time. Sure. Okay. Faber and Faber, if you want to wear the the hair shirt about turning down Orwell, I guess good on you. Um, are they going to charge you $9.99 to get the Animal Farm book with the rejection letter rather than just making the... My guess is they have copyright on the Elliot letter, and so that's the thing that can't be uh-huh. reprinted. So it's a way of having a defensible copyrighted version of the book um, that's coming into the public domain that they can charge money for. Whereas there's going to be a whole, you're, you're going to be able to get it on Project Gutenberg, and maybe they'll even maybe they, maybe they'll just a nominal charge one ninety nine for a good Faber and Favor copy that includes the Elliot rejection letter is a way to scoop up a few extra dollars for virtually no cost. Too cynical? I don't know. That's where I am about this. This isn't wronging any sort of right. If it was for free. Then I'd say, okay, this seems to be some sort of um, penance, uh, you know, literary taste penance, which no one cares about, frankly, in the first place. Um, but am I, I, I guess I'm crapping all over this. I did, I, it didn't come out that way when I was feeling about it, but suddenly I'm feeling very like, cool, Faber. We're very impressed by how bad you are at this. What I would really like now, I think, is a, an anthology yes. of the rejection letters that were sent to the writers of books that became classics. It's an interesting exercise. I did a post um, a while ago for the site, and a while ago meaning like eight years ago, that was rounding up some of the some of the books the New York Times book review totally got wrong. Um, there was a collection of um, for the hundred year anniversary of the New York Times book review, they published an anthology of, you know, the reviews of major works over the time. And I went through and said, okay, which ones did they give bad reviews? Interesting list. Um, I don't think, I I couldn't deduce anything from it. Those are kind of books they tended to be wrong about. It seemed to me pretty evenly distributed about different kinds of books and genres and voices and artistic styles. Um, But I think an anthology of rejection letters would be way more interesting than this. I totally agree with you on that one. Hero of the week, and then we're done Hero for this, for this of one. the week. I will leave it for you to read the whole story yourself, but the short version is that a 101-year-old woman, first of all, congratulations on making it to 101. Well done. Named Sarah Yerkes um, has published her first collection of poetry at the age of 101. When she was in her 90s, a friend invited her to try something new, and um, she had had a decades-long career working as a landscape architect and then as a sculptor. And as she aged, sculpting became physically challenging. Um, so one of her fellow residents at the retirement community where she lives suggested that they take a poetry writing class together. So she joined. Um, she 
wrote some poems and now her first collection of poems called days of blue and flame uh, has been published by passenger books at the university of baltimore it is the quote latest iteration of a creative mind that has worked with form and style for the better part of a century and there's just a wonderful interview with her here it's a photos of her giving a reading this is a real it's never too late reminder um, to do something new and interesting and creative in your life. So thank you for being our hero this week, Sarah Yerkes. Uh, you know, this is the kind of story where I can barely switch which flavor of Coke I like to drink, let alone the idea of switching artistic <laughs> mediums at 101. I got to print this out and staple it to my forearm or something because what an amazing achievement um, and a testament to the mental energy and creative flexibility um, to spend a lifetime doing one thing and then say, you know what, I'm not done. I want to try something completely different yeah, and, do it, and do it with Verve. Um, congratulations to you. All right. So stay tuned for my interview with Lee Price. If you like the kind of stuff we talk about on this show, you're going to like this. And also check out her book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Books. It's out now from Basic Books. It's a short read, really interesting. Um, we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Leah Price, who is the founding director of the Rutgers Book Initiative and has a book out now called What We Talk About When We Talk About Books, The, Hus the History and Future of Reading. It's about, you know, what we mean when we talk about books, what our feelings about with the contemporary cultural discourse around books and reading, the anxiety and the possibilities of innovation and new technology in a historical context about how books have always been a locus of innovation. There's always been anxiety about reading and how that can offer some you know, it's comfort as we deal with a changing world. Leah, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. Fascinating book. There's so many places to go that ring a lot of the bells I'm interested in, and you know answers or have thought about questions at least that I've only wondered about in passing that we've talked about on this show in other contexts before. I, I guess the place I want to start is... Maybe distinguishing, you may have used this differentiation or may have just picked up with something else you said, that there's kind of in the popular imagination the idea of a book with a capital B as separate from book history, lowercase b, lowercase h. Almost in, the, in its current imagination, it's almost an ahistorical idea. Like there's the book and it was sort of given maybe to Moses somewhere at some point, <laughs> um, and it's sort of existing outside of space and time. And it seems like one thing you're interested in professionally and with this book in particular is, I don't know, reminding people that the book is a historical object. Um, do you have any sense of, or I, I know you do because you write a little bit about the book, how did this happen, that the book became something we think of as an idea as much as an object? That is a great question, and one answer going back, maybe not all the way to Moses, would be to Christianity, to Judaism, to other religions of the book. But more approximately, I think that in the digital era, it has become convenient and maybe too convenient to use the book, this supposedly stable, unchanging, uncorrupted baseline as an idealized past against which we can compare mm. all the problems of our complicated and changing 
digital present. So one of the fallacies that I try to argue against is the belief that I think many of us harbor more or less consciously that we live in a messy, complicated, commercialized, digital media ecology that is worse than the simple, innocent, pure, stable, bookish world that has been around for the past, let's say, half millennium. And what I try to show is that the printed book was as fast-changing, was and is as fast-changing, as complicated, as entangled in commercial considerations, Mm. and as much at the forefront of technological change as any digital medium is. So this is why I take issue in a possibly hair-splitting way with (laughs) the idea that many uh, public libraries are beginning to implement now of a technology-free reading room. I am as enthusiastic as the next person for the idea of a book where you can go without being pursued by your smartphone, but a technology-free reading room is an oxymoron because Mm. every act of reading depends on a technology, whether, as in the case of Moses, to whom you just alluded, that technology is a tablet or whether it is a tablet in the sense of an iPad, or whether it is a printed book, or whether indeed it is a podcast like Mm. this one. There is no reading without technology, and it seems to me that recapitulating and remembering the rich variety of technological forms that reading material has taken at different times and places can help us feel less anguished Mm. about the new forms of technology by which reading is coming to be vehicled now because it's not as if the book was ever a stable form. Right. The book is technology. It is a technology that's taken on a lot of different technological innovations over time. And I guess, so it's important, I guess, to rephrase a little bit, we were saying it's important to remember that so that we don't confuse or oversimplify the relationship of book and technology, that one isn't used as the polar opposite of another, and all the problems we associate either rightly or wrongly with capital T technology are somehow absent because we're reading, let's see what you call it, long form literary print that we're reading a novel in hardback that we bought from a independent bookstore, right? Which is sort of the idealized reading <laughs> transaction at this point. Yes. The, the most virtuous. And mm-hmm. again, I have some sympathy with that on my website uh, devoted to this forthcoming book. I don't link to the book on Amazon. I only link to the book on IndieBound and WorldCat, mm-hmm. because like many book lovers, I think, yes, that, that the ideal bookish transaction involves two human beings face-to-face 
uh, not involving a gigantic uh, surveillance and logistics conglomerate, <laughs> but uh, the complication or the caveat to that belief is the work of media historians like Ted Stripos and Richard Nash, who point out that throughout its history, the printed book has never provided a refuge from commercialism mm. and commercialization. As Stripos points out, in the 19th century, printed books were the first commodity to be sold on credit. So books are essentially uh, to credit, so to speak, or to blame for later innovations like mm. higher purchase uh, marketing of furniture and layaway purchasing of clothing. And you could say ultimately the subprime mortgage crisis because books were the first commodity that people were willing to buy on credit, largely because, coming back to your first question, the book had such an aura of virtue around it that buying books on credit destigmatized debt. Mm. As long as you were going into debt to buy a book, you mm. were doing a morally good thing. And later, books were the first commodity to be used as a guinea pig for new inventory control systems like the International Standard Book Number. And as Stripas points out, this is why when a young entrepreneur named Jeff Bezos <laughs> wanted a, uh, to test drive his idea of online retailing, the most convenient guinea pig that he could pick on was the printed book. Because there's so many SKUs, right? There's so many individual titles that it's a warehousing problem that lends itself to being fulfilled virtually. Giant warehouses where you can have basically infinite inventory competing with a Barnes & Noble, which even at 100,000 titles still can't contain everything, let alone an independent bookstore or something else like that. Um, really interesting. Exactly. And at the same time, you could think even more crudely about the shape of books, the fact that the vast majority of books are rectangular makes them much easier to mm -hmm. send by mail and to shelve and warehouse in a rational way than irregularly shaped objects. So Amazon had to practice on these standardized objects before moving into tougher challenges from this point of view. So that's been going on, you know, in, in anyone's living memory, and certainly in the living memory of multiple generations past, for the for the the kinds of people who take emotional refuge in the idea that the capital B book read in print is the idealized transaction, is sort of a refuge to a golden age, maybe a retreat from a certain kind of radical modernity. What this golden age idea has been brought up, like there's some other time when reading was better. And the way we related to books was better. Is that a real time? Is it, a, is it, was it a fleeting moment of time? Who is reading what, when, where, when we imagine sort of the way it, quote unquote, should be or the way that we wish it was? Do you have any sense of that? I think that 
implicitly the past to which we compare our digital reading present is usually not since the dawn of humanity, but rather the Cold War era heyday of the paperback. Mm. So these were books that really for the first time in history were cheap enough to be universally accessible, portable enough that their existence multiplied the places and times available for reading. Because if you are reading a gigantic folio Bible, you are not going to take that thing (laughs) to keep open with one hand on the subway while your other hand is occupied in holding a strap. And, um, and, uh, simultaneously durable enough to be bashed around in the world, Mm. but light enough and flexible enough to be stuffed into a pocket. And this doesn't just depend on the book itself, but on a related technology, which is uh, ubiquitous electric lighting. Mm -hmm. In earlier periods, uh, Reading in bed was dangerous, not in the sense of inculcating people with seditious ideas, but in the more literal sense of setting the blankets on fire if you tried to take a hunk of paper to bed along with a candle. And so the other ideal scene of reading along with the visit to an independent bookstore that you mentioned just now might be curling up in bed with a good book. Mm. But this practice is, in fact, a very recent possibility. It's a couple of centuries old. And likewise, the image of curling up under a tree with a good book, which we now see immortalized in the Kindle icon, (laughs) depends on the books being cheap enough and small enough that you would stick it in your pocket and not worry about grass stains. So one of the stories that I tell has to do with the shrinking and resulting mobilization of the book as it goes from essentially a piece of furniture where the book lives on top of a lectern or a table or a desk and readers make a pilgrimage to the book with all of the suspenseful buildup that that implies to a new regime from the 19th century onward in which books come to the reader and books come with the reader and begin to dog people as they go around their daily activities. And this, once again, doesn't have to do only with the technologies of book manufacture itself, but also with new infrastructures that might seem quite unrelated to the book, such as the growth of the uh, railroads, and in particular of commuter Mm. rail, starting in the first half of the 19th century. Because if your commute involves a horse, 
you're going to get extremely nauseous if you try to read, and you're, mm-hmm. in any case, unlikely to have enough light to read. And one of the great unintended consequences of the development of railroads was that all of a sudden, a lot of middle-class people who were living in the new suburbs made possible by the spider web-like radiation of these new uh, commuter rail lines, suddenly these people had a lot of dead time to kill. So I think Mm. one of the takeaways from the history of reading is that the limiting factor, the thing standing between you and getting as much reading done as you would like, is usually not the physical form of the reading device itself, whether that's a smartphone or a laptop or a scroll or a tablet. It's the availability of times and places that are adequate to reading but that are badly suited for doing anything Mm. else. Because (laughs) if you can do something else, usually you're not going to read a book. And this is why, for the purposes of a podcast like this, the car has been an extremely important space for reading for a while now, beginning with the advent of the cassette deck Mm. and the audiobook just as the train was a very important setting for the reading of books and periodicals in the 19th century. We know that literacy has, to generalize wildly, been particularly high in places with a long winter where there's nothing else to do in the evening. Mm -hmm. And so concerns about the effects of digital media on sustained long-form reading, I don't think are at all overblown because one of the things that the smartphone in particular has done is to rush in to fill what used Mm. to be dead time in which productive work was impossible. And in that regard, some of the, I don't know, lionization of the capital B book feels like to me just a displacement of I could be choosing to read, but I'm not. And let me blame the screen and not paper. Like paper is good. Screen is bad because screen is so alluring, so seductive, Uh, whether or not it's an ebook or whether it's Tumblr or Twitter or Instagram or the CNN.com or whatever. It's not so much that the print versus screen almost sublimating that awareness that I could be choosing to do something else and I'm not. And if it's, it's not my problem, it's the technology's problem? Is it, is it that simple? I think that's an interesting way of suggesting that we are externalizing onto our devices issues that are, in fact, internal to us. And one of the ironies about the new sense of the book as a kind of symbol or guarantor of our own self-discipline and willpower and ability to focus is that the printed book, and in particular 
long-form printed fiction <laughs> spent most of its existence as a symbol of exactly the opposite. So if you asked a Victorian clergyman or a doctor or a asylum proprietor what are the effects on a young man's character of reading a lot of novels, they would have said, and they did say with great frequency in sermons and medical reports, if a young man reads many novels, he loses the capacity to concentrate, he, hmm. he loses the ability to focus, he loses his willpower, he becomes distractible, irritable, impatient... And those are, of course, precisely the vices from which now we are asking the reading of fiction to inoculate us mm. when war and peace is assigned as a <laughs> mindfulness strategy or as a way to build up mental endurance and concentration. Hmm. And, and I guess it speaks to... I don't know. I, I've long wondered about this too. You bring up the anecdote, and I can't remember who who you're citing, so I, I, have to, I have to apologize for that. Someone who sort of did the calculation that if the average American read Proust rather than spend what fifteen hundred hours a year on their smartphone, they could read In Search of Lost Time like twenty times. And this is sort of taken as well. That would be a better use of our time, I guess. Like sort of the warrant of that argument is, and that would be better if we read In Search of Lost Time twenty times. But I still feel like you're, you're on to something with the idea that it's not actually the, the reading of the thing that we're, that we're valuing, it's that we're doing that other than something else. Like, do we really understand and believe, or do we believe that reading In Search of Lost Time is good for us, or do we just sort of hope it's true? I, I always come back to the idea. Are you really a better person? Is your, is your life better if you've read in search of lost time rather than group texting with your friends about brunch? I think that's a, th a thornier question than maybe we give it credit for on, on a day-in, day-out basis. Maybe the answer to that depends on whether you mean better intellectually, better right, morally, right. better spiritually, or even as in the case of some of the bibliotherapists to whom I talked in the course of researching this book, better medically. I think that the claim that reading makes you better in the sense of more intelligent, smarter, is a long-standing and uncontroversial one. Mm -hmm. What surprised me in the course of reading this book is how much that claim seems to be coming to be replaced by the claim that reading makes you spiritually better, makes you more mm. mindful or more empathetic or more focused. And of course, it has long been claimed that the reading of sacred texts or devotional texts makes you spiritually better. But the idea that reading a novel makes you spiritually better or mm. that the act of reading long-form print, regardless of its content, mm. is morally uplifting, that, I think, is quite a new claim. And as you say, it 
may reduce the book to a placeholder that crowds out mm. other activities rather than to something worthwhile in its own right. Admittedly, that claim itself has a history stretching back to the middle of the mm. 19th century when the first taxpayer-funded public libraries emerged. And one of the arguments used during those middle decades of the 19th century to persuade skeptical taxpayers to fork out for the strange new thing of a library that was not a private business and that was not restricted to a few clubby gentlemen members mm -hmm. was to say, well, if the working man is not down at the library, he's going to be down at the pub getting drunk or having seditious newspapers read aloud to him by some crony who, unlike him, is literate. So open the library as a way of nudging working class people away from the pub. So this sense of reading as something that crowds out more unsavory mm. activities <laughs> has been around for a while. Sort of a, a experiential, like, packing peanuts, right? Put it in there around yourself <laughs> so that it, you, keep, you keep, yourself, keep yourself safe. Uh, let me get you out on this one. We're running out of time. Um, so as someone who's looked at book history in, in a rigorous way and has been thinking about it as you've been writing this book, Am I right to characterize your take on, you know, the the, the particular book-related innovations of the last fifteen and twenty years as more a continue, more of a in, continuous with existing technological change and less of a rupture? Do I have that right? Yes, and you have that exactly right. And by that, I don't mean nothing new under the sun. Sure. On the right. con on the contrary, I mean that. Reading technologies have always been one of the fastest changing technologies. And so the fact of change, paradoxically, constitutes a continuity. And it seems to me that this is a hopeful message in that there, there can be a kind of self-pitying narcissism mm -hmm. in saying we are the first generation to experience this cataclysmic <laughs> right, and right. apocalyptic rate of change. There may well be kinds of cataclysm going on around us that are unprecedented right, in human yes. history, but my guess would be that those involve climate rather than bibliographic form. Yeah. It does seem to me, to, and, and I, I find myself maybe guilty is too strong of an indictment, but, um, I don't know, falling back into a position of, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the world. There always is ever, ever was, and ever will be, but that going back and reading as sort of a, a redoubt to which I can fall back to in the face of political turmoil, technological change, you know, geopolitical questions, climate change, that somehow going and reading my print book next to my electric lamp in my leather chair, that's, 
not just safe, but also a kind of resistance. I, I think there's something to that idea that's out there. I don't know if that's good or healthy, but I, I see that as a kind of message that gets circulated a little bit. Have you seen a certain, a, a similar kind of, I don't know, formulation? Yes, and clearly that's a kind of escape that we all need now more than ever. I would just say that solitary, introspective retreat is only one of the functions that books can fill. And another another function that books have filled historically and I think can continue to fill if we remember that history is as a call to arms as a form that builds communities and builds solidarity and circulates among people from otherwise very different uh, social environments. And one of the reasons that I emphasized in the book projects like a bookmobile in London that delivers books to readers who are sleeping rough or librarians who make uh, libraries available to undocumented migrants Mm -hmm. is that I think the book can be both, both things. It can be a retreat, but it can also be a catalyst of social change. Leah Price what we talk about when we talk about books is out. By the time you're listening to this, it will be out from Basic Books. Go get it wherever books are sold. And books are sold everywhere now because we all have phones and computers. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 